0: There's a well-known movie that came out back in 2008 where the opening scene of the movie is the climax of the ending. As the film starts, you see a young man from India under interrogation, and then a question pops up on the screen. Jamal Malik is one question away from winning 20 million rupees. How did he do it? For multiple choice, Answers are revealed, A, he cheated, B, he's lucky, C, he's a genius, D, it is written. The scene then plays out with him sitting down for the game show and cutting in and out between the show and the interrogation. It's revealed that he's a simple young man from a low-level job at a call center who's about to win this great prize. And this opening causes the audience to wonder how he got to this point. And it draws them in to pay attention to the flashbacks that follow throughout the movie to reveal the answer. You see, knowing the climax up front in a movie like this causes us to watch with anticipation of discovering what it was that led to an ending like that. Now, just so I didn't lose everyone in the room, that movie is Slumdog Millionaire, um, if you didn't know. But I was reminded this week that that's how we're meant to read the Gospels. You see, the original recipients of these letters knew of a man named Jesus who died by crucifixion. They would undoubtedly have heard the miracles that followed him and the reports of his resurrection from the dead. And the four Gospels are written to provide portraits of Jesus of Nazareth with the goal of revealing who he truly is, why he died on a cross, and how we should respond. And the cross of Jesus is the climax of the end of the story. It's something we should know about in the opening scene, so to speak. And everything that we study in the Gospels is meant to open our eyes to more details, to confirm who true Jesus truly was, why he came to die, and how we should respond. So we've looked at the cross this morning in communion, and we need to keep that in mind as we're going through our passage today, which comes from Luke 18, 9-17 because it's going to provide pivotal truths that shed light onto these things. And what I want to do is start by reading verses 9 through 14. I want to show what they ultimately point to and then begin to dig in to see the truths that are revealed within them. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 18 verses 9 through 14 and read them with me. And he told them a parable to the effect that they, oh, sorry, verse 9. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a very familiar passage, probably for many of us in this room. And I think there are lyrics of a song that we sing here often that captures what this parable is pointing to. And the lyrics go like this, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You see, this parable ultimately seeks to teach us to wholly trust in Jesus' name. What we see from an overview is that it's a parable directed towards a particular audience. Did you see that in verse 9? It was told to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous And treated others with contempt. So, this parable is directed at hearts that are confident in their own righteousness and look down on others around them. They are secure in their own goodness and they feel like they're better off than others. We also notice it's a contrast of two particular types of men in society in that day. One was a Pharisee who would have been among the spiritually elite or the most righteous people in the land. The other is a tax collector who is considered among one of the worst of all sinners. We see both men seeking to worship God at the temple, and we see two vastly different approaches. The Pharisee thanks God for what he is not and what he does. The tax collector calls himself a sinner and begs for mercy. And then comes what quite honestly would have been an astonishing conclusion by Jesus. The tax collector is the one that leaves the temple justified, not the Pharisee. Now in that day, people would have been saying, what? I mean, look at their lives, look at their position in society, look at their good deeds. How can this be? But Jesus tells us it's because God exalts the humble. You see, God exalts those who approach him with an awareness of their need and a trust in him alone. And our understanding of the gospel reminds us that this trust involves holy trusting in Jesus' name. That is what this parable is pointing us to this afternoon that there is no other person, not even the most pure and good person you could imagine that can be trusted in, only Jesus, only his blood and righteousness. You see, this parable points to the answer of why Jesus died on the cross. What we sang about and what we remembered in communion, it's that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. He was the Savior of the world. He is the righteous Son of God, the eternal King who came to die on the cross for the sins of His people. And on the cross, He bore the just payment deserved for our sins. And He rose victorious over death and the grave so that now for those who trust in Him, there is no longer condemnation but everlasting joy in the presence of God forever. And the point of the parable is to open our eyes to the danger of having any trust in our own righteousness. To set our hearts to holy trust in Jesus' name. That's the main idea that's at play. And with that in mind, let's move through the parable and let's dig in a little deeper and see what Jesus is revealing to us inside of it. What Jesus does first in this parable is he exposes our filthy rags. Focus in on verses 10 to 12. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now we see in verse 10 that both men went up to the temple to pray. It starts out positively. And this most likely wasn't just prayer, but it was probably all the worship activities that were taking place within the temple. So these men are going to God in an apparent desire to worship Him and pray to Him. And then Jesus focuses on this Pharisee. And we see that the Pharisee stood by himself. One Greek scholar suggests that the term might imply that he stood in a showy position to be seen by others. As we consider it contrasted to how the tax collector stood far off and bowed his head and beat his breast, it would appear that this kind of stance is a proud and a confidence won by this Pharisee. Then as we begin to examine the prayer that this Pharisee gives in verse 11, we see that this Pharisee is a pretty stand-up guy. He doesn't extort money from anybody. He isn't unjust. He hasn't committed adultery. And he definitely isn't like that tax collector that's here. And then in verse 12, he just keeps getting on better. He fasts twice a week. Hmm, That's good stuff. He gives tithes on all that he gets. Not only that, but he seems to thank God for this. Like he's acknowledging it's God's grace in his life. I mean, just look at this guy. If he were to show up on a Jewish matchmaking list, he'd be quite the catch, right? All joking aside, though, let's recognize if we weren't aware of Jesus' conclusion, we'd be thinking, surely... This Pharisee is following the Lord. You see, until Jesus says this man isn't justified, we would be willing to bet that he would have been. And the chances are all of us at some point in life have either approached God or been tempted to approach God like this. God, you know my heart. You know how good I am. I thank you I haven't fallen into sin like that guy. I don't lie. I don't cheat. God, I go to church. I pray. I give to the work. Look at how much I've sacrificed for you, God. And we're even tempted to rope God into this with false thankfulness that is really just masking self-righteousness. You see, church, I think the hardest thing in studying a passage like this that's familiar, and especially one with a Pharisee as the main character, who we know are the bad guys, is to let it truly be a mirror into our own hearts. Because what Jesus wants to do is open our eyes to the truth of Scripture that exposes all of our righteous deeds as nothing but filthy rags. David says in Psalm 143:2, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Solomon concluded the same in Ecclesiastes 7:20. He says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Paul reminds us in Romans 3:10 that none is righteous, no, not one. And where I get this point, from, to seal it into our hearts, Isaiah 64, 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, or as the King James Version puts it that I memorized in many years ago, like filthy rags. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. This is the first truth that we need to see for our hearts to realize That we need to wholly trust in Jesus' name. That our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. Far too often, many of us go through life taking righteousness placebos. You know what a placebo is, right? It's a sugar pill designed to trick people to think they're taking effective medicine. And these placebos that we take, our efforts might occasionally alleviate the symptoms of our sin nature causing us to think that we're justified before God because of them. But in the end, we'll find that it's nothing but a false feeling of peace with God, and they keep us from seeing our true need of Jesus Christ. Nothing but pride builds in our hearts, nothing but contempt for others, and we will never be justified by our own righteousness. And so, to start with, Jesus shines a light into this dark heart of mine that consistently wants to say, God, look at what I do for you. And he says, Ben, your righteous deeds are nothing but filthy rags in my sight. He does that with the picture of the Pharisee. And then he goes a little deeper, just to dig it in further by shifting the focus to the tax collector as he reveals our true need. Just picture the scene in verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breasts and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's a fascinating contrast with the Pharisee, isn't it? The tax collector doesn't stand to be seen by others, but far off. He doesn't have a proud confidence, but he has a humility that he can't even lift his eyes and he beats his breast. He doesn't speak in long sentences about his accomplishments and what he isn't. In fact, in the original Greek language, he says six words compared to the Pharisees' 29. What we see here is an act of deep distress and grief over the recognition of his sinful nature. But the interesting thing is this confession goes deeper when we understand what request he is making. You see, in our translations, we read, Be merciful to me, and it's an accurate translation, but it doesn't seem to capture the full sense of what this tax collector is saying because the word he used points to atonement, for sin. It points to propitiation, which is the appeasement of God. It points to making reconciliation for something. It's used only one other time in the New Testament, in Hebrews 2.17, where we read that Jesus became a faithful high priest and the servants of God, and here's the word, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the depth of what this tax collector is crying out is even greater. One commentator puts it this way. He says the fullest sense of what the tax collector said was God be merciful to me through your atoning sacrifice for sins because I am a sinner. He's not just asking for generic mercy. He's asking for mercy towards his sinful state. You see, he was humble before God. But this humility wasn't just thinking less of himself like we often think of humility. This humility was recognizing his true need before a holy and a just God. And this plea that this tax collector gives is a pointer to Christ on the cross because that's the only place atonement for sins is found. You see, church, the truth is we all should respond to God like this tax collector. We all should recognize the reality of our sinful nature and we go to God with nothing in our hands but we cry out, be mercy, merciful to me, a sinner. And as we do that, we can truly grasp the beauty of the next truth that Jesus brings out to cause us to wholly trust in Jesus' name. When we see How Jesus exalts a just, merciful, and gracious God. Don't miss the truth of verse 14. Look there with me. He says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector was justified. Now, soak that in. Justified. Church, this isn't a puny word. Justification is a legal term, a forensic term. Justification is God's act of reckoning the ungodly as righteous in His sight and acceptable in His presence. And it's God's act of imputing to them the righteousness of Christ. It's a decisive and completed act that accompanies salvation. Declaring those who trust in Christ as righteous forever in God's sight. That is what you and I have received if we are trusting in Jesus. Justification. That's what the tax collector received. That's what we long for. But it's not what the Pharisee received. Because he was trusting in his own righteousness. And he exalted himself. And it gets even worse for anyone like him. Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. You see, it's not just that they won't be justified, but they will be condemned forever. Our God is a just God. Sin has to be punished. It's either punished in the person of Jesus Christ or it's punished in the person that's not trusting Jesus. That's the reality before everyone. And those who don't receive God's justification through Christ will come under his judgment. Yet for those justified, it's not just mercy received. But we see in verse 14, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Romans 8.30 reminds us those whom God justified, he also Glorified. those who humbly recognize their righteousness is filthy rags and their true need of Christ's atoning work don't just receive forgiveness as good as that is they don't just receive the fact that their sins are paid for but they receive a future promise a future promise of glorified bodies that can abide in the presence of God forever where there is nothing but true delight What could get better than that? The answer? Nothing. Nothing even comes close to comparing to that. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. So those are the truths of this parable. Our filthy rags are exposed. Our true need of Christ is shown to us. And our God, who is just and merciful and gracious, is exalted. But there's one more thing that we need to consider. And it's how verses 15 to 17 relate to this parable. Because they appear to be connected. And what I think they do here is that they drive home our only approach to God. Look there with me. Verses 15 to 17. He says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. Now you're probably wondering, how is this connected? The parable is about a tax collector and a Pharisee. This is about little children and infants. So I want to show you the connection that I see because I want you to see it for yourself. First, in verse 15, it starts with the word now or and or then in some translation. And it's a term of continuance, meaning to, to connect this to the previous section. The second thing that we see is that these verses focus at the end on entering the kingdom of God. And if you've been tracking with us as we're moving through Luke, this connects all the way back to the Pharisees' question about the kingdom in Luke 17.20, where they asked Jesus, when will the kingdom come? At the end of chapter 17, we see Jesus point to the exaltation of those who lose their life for Christ's sake. In verse 8 of chapter 18, the Son of Man is told to be coming to those who have faith. And Jesus is now speaking of entering the kingdom. So this is all flowing together, talking about what it takes to enter the kingdom. Now, I'm not sure that we can confidently say this all happened at the same moment in time. I'm convinced of this. I think God's providence is providing a beautiful example of the truths in the parable with these children. But we can say that Luke sees a connection here. So keep studying it for yourselves and see what you think. But we need to see the connection because it shows us that receiving the kingdom like a child has similarities to the way the tax collector was justified. I want to say that again because we can get confused of what it means to receive the kingdom like a child if we don't understand this. Receiving the kingdom like a child has similarities to the way the tax collector was justified. So if we're trying to figure out what it means, we're looking at that parable and saying, how is it connected? I'm convinced what's happening is receiving the kingdom like a child further expounds on the way someone is justified before God by showing our only approach to God. So let's ask ourselves, what does it mean to receive the kingdom like a child? There are two common answers that I don't think are correct. I don't think it means that we must be innocent like children. We don't see anything of innocence in the text. In fact, I haven't found one place in scripture that convincingly teaches that children are innocent. And if you have children of your own, you recognize very quickly they are not. David says in Psalm 51:5, "Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me." Or as the Christian Standard Version helpfully captures, "Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful." When my mother conceived me. Another reason it can't mean this is that the confession of the tax collector is inexplicitly linked to guilt. He cries out, I'm a sinner. So to receive the kingdom like a child doesn't mean we need to be innocent like a child. I also don't think it means we need to have humble faith like a child. And I think that's a temptation to see here. But notice in verse 15 that Luke calls these children at first infants, newborn babies. Notice that he says they were brought to Jesus. They didn't do anything to go to Jesus themselves. They had to be carried there. So what does it mean to receive the kingdom like a child? I think there's two possibilities that our text points to. First, it could mean coming to God in full and complete dependence on him with nothing to bring for yourself. I think that's what we see with Luke's emphasis on infants. A pastor named Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, what is the quality of being of of children, and especially those characterized as babies in the opening line of the passage? Helplessness. Jesus has in mind here the objective state that every child who has ever lived, regardless of race, culture, or background, has experienced, namely, helpless dependence. Every child born into the world is absolutely, completely, totally, and actually helpless. I remember when my children were newborns. Seems like decades ago. And you'd have what's called back time or tummy time. It's like the best time. You just lay them on the ground and you get your space. (laughs) So Maybe some of you parents remember doing this. And as you lay the newborn down on their back or their tummy, they have no ability to move at first. They can't turn themselves over. They can't crawl away. They're just laying there helplessly, completely dependent on mom and dad for anything. If they start to fuss or cry, they can't do anything about it. You see, I think that could be the idea Jesus has in mind here helpless dependence on God. The second possibility is that it means humbly recognizing your low estate. You see, infants and children were commonly very lowly regarded in Jewish society. That could be why the disciples are rebuking people for bringing them to Jesus. It also connects with the tax collector's status in society, which was considered low as well. And in Matthew 18, 1-4, we see the same concept where the disciples are asking who's the greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus tells them to lower themselves like a child. So I think either one of these are possible conclusions of what it means to receive the kingdom like a child. And I really think they could be taken together if you think about it. Church, to receive the kingdom like a child means that we humbly recognize our true low estate and our full dependence on Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's our only approach to God. To recognize our state, to humble ourselves before Him. Is this really how you are approaching God? That's the question for you to think about this morning. Is this how you approached God when you walked into worship this morning? Is this how you approach God when you pray to Him? Recognizing that you have nothing to give. You're fully dependent on everything he has done in Christ. And if it isn't, make today the day that changes everything. Make today the day that you see your righteous deeds as nothing but filthy rags. Make today the day that you see your true need of Christ's atoning work on the cross. And make today the day that you rejoice and exalt in a just and merciful God and you approach Him with a humble recognition of your low estate and your complete dependence on Christ. Because that's when you'll be justified. That's when you'll enter the kingdom of God. I couldn't help but bring out one of my favorite hymns to conclude this passage by August Toplady in 1776 titled Rock of Ages because I think it captures this passage for us. So let me end with it. And if you know it, sing it together with me. Rock of ages, clap for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow. Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill Thy laws' demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All oh, for sin could not atone, Thou must save and Thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to Thy cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress. Helpless long to Thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, save your I die. Let me pray this over us. Would you stand with me? Our Father, we approach your throne of glory with nothing in our hands, nothing that will ever satisfy your demands of righteousness. But we approach because we know through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have access. We know that through His righteousness, we have Your favor. So we ask, God, for You to remind us of our complete dependence on You over and over and over again. Father, I ask if there's anyone here that doesn't know You, that hasn't yet experienced the reality of seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, will you now, in this moment, open their eyes to the glory of Christ? Will you show them their need of you and save them today by your grace and your mercy? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.